Chapter Twelve of Wolf of Saxon by George Alfred Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Edith. Two days after the departure of messengers from the castle, the lookout gave notice that he perceived a large body of horsemen and footmen coming down the valley, and half an hour later the banner of Gurth could be made out. The garrison at once set to work to replace the planking of the bridge, and this was accomplished by the time that the Saxon earl, accompanied by several thanes, and followed by a strong body of troops, reached the platform at the other end. As he did so, Beorn and Wolf crossed the bridge to meet him. "'You have done well indeed, thanes,' Gurth exclaimed. "'You have made a conquest to be proud of.' for as we rode along this place seemed to us well-nigh impregnable. But your messengers have told me how you captured it, and how stoutly you have since defended it. It was a daring thought indeed to attempt the assault of such a place with a handful of men. You have rendered a splendid service to the king, for with the capture of this fortress, and of Llewellyn himself and his children, there is no fear that there will be trouble in this part of Wales for years to come. We, too, are specially indebted to you, for had we been forced to besiege this place, it could have only have been taken with a vast loss of life, and it might well have resisted all our efforts. That seventy men should have taken it, even if weakly defended, is wondrous indeed. It is to Wolf, my lord, that the credit is chiefly due, Beorn said. It was he who proposed and planned the attack and though I have done my best to support him, I have but acted at his second-in-command. He is quicker-witted than I am, and far more fitted to lead. Wolf was about to speak when Gurth stopped him with a gesture of the hand. At any rate, Beorn, he said, you possess qualities that are by no means common. That you are a brave soldier I know well, but so I trust are all my thanes. Still, it is not every one who has the wit to perceive that another has sharper wits than himself, still fewer who would have the generosity to stand aside and give the major share of it in an exploit like this to another. While you may lose in credit by your avowal, you will at least gain in the esteem of us all. Now, Commandant, he said to Wolf with a smile, show us the way to this capture of yours. Before entering the castle itself, Gurth made a detour of the walls, and upon seeing them was still more surprised than before at the manner in which the capture had been effected. "'You see, Thanes,' he said, "'the matter hinged on the possession of these gates through the cross-walls. That the rear wall should have been taken by surprise was a daring action, but it would have availed nothing had the garrison had time to close even the second of these gates, for though, as it seems, no more numerous than our own men, they could have easily have held it until reinforced from the village below, and would then have turned the tables on their assailants.' The capture was due to the quickness and boldness with which Wolf and Beorn, with the few men who obtained a footing on the wall when the alarm was given, rushed forward and held the inner gateway until the rest came up. Gurth paused for a time on the wall above the point where the secret passage came out on the face of the rock, and having asked many questions as to how it was they were so well prepared for Llewellyn and his followers when they made the attack, he commended Wolf very strongly for his conduct in this matter. "'Others might have taken the castle as you did, young Thane,' he said. 
but assuredly most would have lost it again for having set guards on the walls they would have given themselves up to feasting and sleep without a thought that there might possibly exist a secret passage through this rock which looks as if nothing short of a winged army could scale it what say you thanes the saxons cordially agreed with the earl they were stout fighters but better in the field than in council and it was in no small degree to the danish blood in their veins that the sons of godwin owed the vigour and intellect that had raised the family to so lofty a position among their countrymen on concluding his inspection of the walls gurth entered the castle and after first examining the entrance to the secret passage sat down with the thanes to a banquet the preparation of which had been begun as soon as their coming was perceived after that gurth paid a visit to llewellyn your fate is not in my hands prince he said to him but in that of my brother harold as however you have used your influence to persuade your people to submit i shall do my best to induce him to take a favourable view of your case the next day the main body of gurth's force arrived and encamped in the valley llewellyn's chief all came in and made their submission but the people for the most part took to the hills as day after day news came of the terrible retaliation dealt out by the troops of harold and tostig they lost heart altogether and sent in messengers craving to be allowed to come in and lay down their arms gurth at once accepted their submission and hundreds returned to their homes in other parts of wales the feeling that resistance was vain rapidly extended their most fertile valleys had all been turned into deserts and even on their own hills and among their own forests where they had hitherto deemed themselves safe from attack they were pursued and hunted down by the now lightly armed saxons from all parts therefore offers to submit were sent in and as proof of their submission and regret for past behaviour they seized griffith their king killed him and sent his head to harold who thereupon granted them terms and ordered his forces to withdraw beyond the border the campaign had lasted less than three months but so terrible had been the blow dealt to the welsh that a hundred years passed before they again ventured to renew their incursions into england llewellyn was pardoned but great breaches were made in the walls of the fortress facing the hill and these he was forbidden ever to repair his children were taken to england to be brought up there and to serve as hostages for his future good behaviour harold when he learnt the particulars of the capture and defence of porth wynn expressed his approval in the warmest terms you have performed the greatest and most important feat of the war wolf he said yes it is right that you should give every credit to beorn for his share in the matter but i know you both well and am assured that beorn would never have conceived and carried out the attack and that had he done so successfully he and his men would have all been slain by llewellyn that night beorn is a good youth he is brave and kind-hearted he is no fool and will make an excellent thane will become a favourite at court and be always loyal and staunch but i shall look to see you more than this you have a head quick to plan readiness and decision in danger and as you have shown a genius for war study the writings of the romans the greatest masters of war the world has ever seen make yourself acquainted with the methods of caesar and other great commanders and do not neglect to ponder on their laws and customs 
when matters are settled here travel to the various courts of europe and acquaint yourself with the ways of peoples who are far more advanced than we in civilization and you may come to stand some day among the most trusted counsellors of the king and as one of the best leaders of his troops i see that the success you have attained while yet so young has not puffed you up in any way always remember wolf that though success may be envied those who are successful may yet be liked if only they themselves do not seem conscious of success i should say you had best not make a long stay at court but betake you shortly to your estate it is a good school and one who can rule his own people wisely has a sound preparation for posts of larger responsibility you will always find in the prior of bramber a wise adviser who will direct your studies and will aid you where your latinity falls short it will be time enough in another five years for you to go abroad but of course i do not wish you to remain all that time away from court it is never good to be forgotten therefore come up two or three times a year i trust there will be no fresh wars or troubles to hinder your studies or interfere with your life but remember there is always danger from normandy therefore always keep on foot your force of housecarls and if as i think your estates can afford it add to their number so that if trouble does come you will be able to again play a prominent part in it wolf's contingent marched with the rest of the troops from the east as far as reading and there struck off by the nearest road to staining he and beorn accompanied harold to london and after staying there for a short time and taking part in the fates with which the conquest of the welsh was celebrated wolf returned to staining and took up the life he had previously led there before starting he asked harold's advice as to whether he should fortify staining after the manner of the norman castles by no means wolf such castles are useful only against quarrelsome neighbours wars are decided by great battles and if these are lost a castle does but bring ruin upon its possessor for it must sooner or later be taken the man who when a cause is lost returns quietly to his home and goes about his usual work may escape unnoticed while one who shuts himself up in a castle is certain to suffer at last from the vengeance of the conquerors resistance maintained in forests and swamps as was done by the bretons and welsh may weary out a foe but a conqueror can wish for nothing better than that the defeated may assemble themselves in towns and castles where he can slowly perhaps but surely destroy them piecemeal time passed quickly and pleasantly at staining wolf studied hard for three or four hours a day looked after his tenants hunted and hawked doubled the number of his company of housecarls and often rode over to the priory of an evening he now took his place naturally among the thanes in that part of the country the reputation he had gained in the two wars giving him a standing among them to which from his youth he would not otherwise have been entitled in accordance with harold's advice he went three times during the year up to court where he generally met beorn who spent the greater part of his time there how can you like all this formality and ceremony is more than i can imagine beorn i don't care either for the formality or the ceremony but i like the amusement and the gaiety and should ask with much more reason how can you like to spend your time studying parchments and reading the doings of those old romans when you might be enjoying yourself here the matter is altogether beyond me 
I like it for itself, and I like it because it may have some day be of great service to me. You see, you're ambitious, Wolf. I am not. I don't want to be a great commander or a state councillor, and if I did want it ever so much, I know I should never be one or the other. I am content to be a thane as my father was before me, and seek no greater change than that of a stay for a month at court. That brightens one up more than anything, and one cannot be all one's life hunting in the woods and seeing after the tenants. By the way, I had a quarrel the other day with your old Norman enemy, Fitz Erse. Your name was mentioned, and he chose to sneer defensively. I told him that you had done more already than he would ever do if he lived to be an old man. We came to high words, and the next day met in the forest and there settled it. He ran me through the arm, and I slashed his cheek. As quarrelling is strictly forbidden, he made some excuse and went over to France, while I went down home till my arm was well again. I fancy we hurt each other about equally, but the scar on my arm won't show, while I fancy from what the leech who dressed his wound told me, the seer is likely to spoil his beauty for life. I'm sorry you quarrelled with him about me, Bjorn. It would have been better to have said nothing, though I thank you for your championship. Nonsense, Wolf. I know very well you would not hear anyone speak ill of me without taking up the cudgels for me. Wolf could not deny this. Certainly not, Bjorn. Still, it is a pity to make an enemy, and Fitzurse has shown in my case that he is not one who forgives. The Welsh campaign had terminated at the end of August, and it was a month later that Wolf had returned to Staining. Just a year afterwards he received a message from Harold to come up to London, and to order his housecarls to hold themselves in readiness to start immediately on receiving an order from him. Somewhat surprised, for no news had reached him of any trouble that could call for the employment of an armed force, Wolfe rode for London alone, bidding Osgod follow with the housecarls as soon as he heard from him. When he reached the palace, he heard news that explained the cause of his summons. Northumbria had risen in rebellion against Earl Tostig. He was accused of tyranny and oppression, and had been continually away from his earldom, leaving it to be governed in his absence by a thane. The country north of the Humber had for a long period of years been independent, appointing their own rulers who owed no allegiance whatever to the kings of the West Saxons. Although now incorporated in the Kingdom of England, the Northumbrians regretted their lost independence, and this all the more that the population were for the most part Danish, and viewed with an intense feeling of jealousy the preponderance gained by the West Saxons. Tostig, at the time the revolt declared itself, was hunting with the king, who had a great affection for him, in the forests of Wiltshire, and had not arrived in town when Wolf reached the capital. It was not until the afternoon that Wolf had an interview with Harold. The Earl had just come from a council and was alone. "'Thank you for coming up so speedily,' he said, as he shook the young thane by the hand. "'You have heard the news, I suppose. I have heard that Northumberland has risen in rebellion. Yes, that was the news that arrived four days since. Is it serious?' "'Yes, it's very serious. The rebellion grows each day. It is headed by several of the greatest landowners in the north, both Danish and Saxon.' and the worst part of the news is that the trouble has, as I hear, been stirred up by Edwin of Mercia and his brother. It is the old rivalry between the house of Leofric and ours. They are jealous of our influence with the king, 
and would gladly rend England into two kingdoms again. We hear today that the Northumbrian nobles have summoned a Gemot to meet, which amounts in fact to rebellion, not only against Tostig, but against the king. If Mercia joins Northumbria, it would be a more serious business than that in Wales. I think not that it will be so, Harold said. Edwin has always been conspiring. He stirred up the Welsh, he has encouraged the Norwegians, he has intrigued in Northumbria. He and his brother have ever been a source of trouble, and yet he has never openly rebelled. He sets others to do the fighting for him, prepared if they are successful to reap the fruits of their victory. There is, of course, still hope that moderate counsels may prevail, but I fear that Northumbrians will consider that they have gone too far to turn back. At present, at any rate, no steps will be taken, as long as no armed forces are set in motion. There are hopes that matters may be arranged, but the approach of an army would set all Northumbria on fire. The Gemot is summoned to meet this day week, that is on the 3rd of October, and we shall wait to hear what steps they take. Messengers have already been sent to a large number of thanes to be prepared for service. I would that all kept a force of housecarls as you do. I am going down to-night to my house near Hampton. Do you come down with me, Wolf? Edith will be glad to see you. Wolf had, in the days of his paid ship, several times accompanied Harold to Hampton, and knew well the lady who was known to the Saxons as Edith of the Swan Neck. She was by birth far inferior in position to Harold. The relation between them was similar to that known throughout the Middle Ages as left-hand marriages. These were marriages contracted between men of high rank and ladies of inferior position, and while they lasted were regarded as being lawful. But they could be, and frequently were, broken off when for politic or other reasons the prince or noble had to seek another alliance. The lady was of great beauty and talent, and exercised a large influence over Harold. This was always employed for good, and she was much beloved by the Saxons. The alliance had been formed while Harold was quite a young man, and he and Edith were fondly attached to each other. His rise, however, to the position of the foremost man in England, and the prospect of his accession to the throne, rendered it probable that ere long he would be obliged to marry one who would strengthen his position, and would, from her high birth, be fitted to share the crown with him. William of Normandy was perfectly well aware of the relation in which Edith stood to Harold, and had not regarded her as any obstacle to the Earl's marriage with his daughter, and even Harold himself had not attempted to give it as a reason for declining the offer of the hand of the Norman princess. As they rode down to Hampton, the Earl said, I dare say you are somewhat surprised at my leaving the court at this crisis, Wolf, but in truth I want to keep my hands free. Tostig, you know, is rash and impetuous. I love him well, but I am not blind to his faults, and I fear that the people of Northumbria have some just cause for complaint against him. He is constantly away from his earldom, he was absent for months when he went to Rome, and he spends a great part of his time either at the court here or with the king at his hunting lodges. The Northumbrians are a proud people, and it is small wonder that they object to being governed by an absent earl. Tostig is furious at what he terms the insolence of the Northumbrians, and I would fain avoid all questions of dispute with him. It is not improbable that the king and his counsellors 
may be called upon to hear the complaints of the Northumbrians, and to decide between them and Tostig. This will be bitter enough for my brother. He may return at any moment, and I greatly wish to avoid all argument with him before the matter is discussed in council. The house at Hampton was a large one, and here Edith lived in considerable state. Grooms ran up and took the horses as Harold and Wulf dismounted. Six retainers in jerkins, embroidered with the Earl's cognizance, appeared at the doors. As they entered the house, Edith came out from an inner room and fondly embraced Harold. "'Who is this you have with you, Harold?' "'What, have you forgotten Wulf of Staining, who, as, as I told you, turned out a great fighter, and was the captor of the castle of Porthwyn, and of its owner, Llewellyn ap Rhys?' "'I did not know you again, Wulf,' Edith said, holding out her hand to him. But now that I hear who you are, I recognise you. Why, it's four years since I saw you, and you were then a mischievous little page. Harold has often spoken to me about you, and your adventures in Normandy and Wales. I did not expect to see you, Harold, she went on, turning to the Earl. After what you told me in the letter you sent me yesterday about the troubles in the North, I feared that you would be kept at court. Tosting and the King are still away, he said and he will return so furious at this revolt against his authority that thinking as i do that he is in no small degree at fault for i have frequently remonstrated with him at spending so large a portion of his time away from his earldom i thought it best to get away it's strange how tostig differs from the rest of you edith said you and leofwin and girth are all gentle and courteous while tostig is fierce and impetuous Tostig has his faults, Harold said, but we love each other dearly, and from the time we were boys together we have never had a dispute. It will be hard indeed upon me if I am called upon to side against him. We have learnt, Edith, that Edwin and Morcar have been intriguing with the Northumbrians. These Mercian earls are ever bringing troubles upon the country, and I fear that they will give even greater trouble in the future, if they stir up disturbances as they have done against the king who is king by the will of the people, and also by right of birth, what will it be when... And he stopped. When you shall mount the throne, my Harold, Edith said proudly. Oh, that this feud between Leofric's house and Godwin's were at an end. It bodes ill for England. It is natural, Harold said gently. It is as gall and wormwood to the earls of Mercia to see the ascendancy of the West Saxons and still more would it be so were i godwin's son without a drop of royal blood in my veins to become their king the feud must be closed edith said firmly though wulf noticed that her face paled i've told you so before harold and there is but one way it shall never be closed in that way edith rather i would lie on my grave you have not to think of yourself harold still less of me it is of england you have to think this England that will assuredly choose you as its king, and it will have a right to expect that you will make any or every sacrifice for its sake. Any but that, Harold said. She smiled faintly and shook her head. Wolf did not understand the conversation, but there was a look of earnest resolve in her face that deeply impressed him. He had moved a short distance away, and now turned and looked out of the window, while they exchanged a few more words having been, as he saw, altogether oblivious of his presence in the earnestness with which they both spoke. For a week Harold remained at Hampton. Wolf saw that he was much troubled in his mind, and concluded that the messengers who came and went every day 
were the bearers of bad tidings it was seldom that he was away from the side of edith when they were together she was always bright but once or twice when wolf found her alone her features bore an expression of deep sadness we must ride for london wolf harold said one morning after reading a letter brought by a royal messenger the king has laid his orders on me to proceed at once to town and indeed the news is well nigh as bad as it can be the gemot has voted for the deposition of tostig has even had the insolence to declare him an outlaw and has elected morcar in his place it has also issued decrees declaring all partisans of tostig outlaws and confiscating their estates two of tostig's danish housecarls were slain on the first day of their meeting two hundred of tostig's personal followers have since been massacred his treasury has been broken open and all its contents carried off the election of morcar shows but too plainly the designs of the earls of mercia they wish to divide england into two portions and to reign supreme north of the wellen this will give them full half of england and would assuredly even if we did not oppose them now lead to a terrible war the more terrible as william of normandy will be watching from across the channel ready to take instant advantage of our dissensions god avert a war like this every sacrifice must be made rather than that the men of the north and south of england should fly at each other's throats the earl scarcely spoke a word during the ride to london but rode absorbed in his thoughts with a sad and anxious countenance day after day the news became more serious morcar accepted the earldom of northumbria hurried to york and placing himself at the head of the northumbrian forces marched south being joined on the way by the men of Lincoln, Nottingham, and Derby, all of which shires the Danish element was very strong. At Northampton, which had formed part of the government with Tostig, Morcar was joined by his brother Edwin, at the head of the forces of Mercia, together with a large body of Welsh. They found the people of Northampton less favourable to their cause than they had expected, and in revenge harried the whole country, killing and burning and carrying off cattle as booty and the men as slaves harold bore the brunt of the trouble alone for regardless of the fact that half the kingdom was in flame king edward and tostig continued their hunting expeditions in wiltshire in spite of the urgent messages sent by harold entreating them to return in the meantime still hoping that peace might in some way be preserved harold sent messages to all the thanes of importance in wessex ordering them to prepare to march to london with the whole of their retainers and levies as soon as they received orders to get in motion but while he still tarried in wiltshire the king acceded to harold's request that he might be empowered to go to northampton to treat in edward's name with the rebels as soon as he received this permission harold hastened to northampton accompanied by only a half a dozen of his thanes among whom was wolf he was received with respect by the rebels but when their leaders assembled and in the king's name he called upon them to lay down their arms to cease from ravaging and to lay any complaints that they might have to make against tostig before the king or the national gemot he met with a flat refusal they would not listen to any proposition that involved the possibility of the return of tostig and boldly said that if the king wished to retain northumbria as part of his realm 
he must confirm the sentence of the Gemot upon Tostig, and must recognise their election of Morcar to the earldom. In all this Harold perceived clearly enough that, although it was the Northumbrian leaders who were speaking, they were acting entirely under the influence of Edwin and Morcar. All that he could obtain was that some of the northern thanes should accompany him to lay their demands before the king himself. Edward, upon hearing by a swift messenger sent by Harold, of the failure of his attempt to induce the Northumbrians to lay down their arms, reluctantly abandoned the pleasures of the chase, and proceeded to Bretford near Salisbury, where there was a royal house, and summoned a Wittengemot. As, however, the occasion was urgent, it was attended only by the king's chief counsellors, and by the thanes of that part of Wessex. Between Tostig and Harold the quarrel that the latter had feared had already broken out. Harold was anxious above all things for peace, and although the blow to his own interests, and to those of his family by the transfer of Northumbria from his brother to one of the Mercian earls, was a most serious one, he preferred that even this should take place to embarking in a war that would involve the whole of England. Tostig was so furious at finding that Harold was not willing to push matters to the last extremity in his favour, that he accused him of being the secret instigator of the Northumbrian revolt. The absurdity of such an accusation was evident. It was as much to Harold's interest as to that of Tostig that the great northern earldom should remain in the hands of his family. But an angry man does not reason, and Tostig's fury was roused to the highest point by the outspoken utterances of many of the members of the Wittengermot. These boldly accused him of cruelty and avarice, and declared that many of his acts of severity were caused by his determination, under a show of justice, to possess himself of the wealth of those he condemned. Tostig then rose, and declared before the assembly that the whole rising was the work of Harold. The latter simply denied the charge on oath and his word was accepted as sufficient. The white hand then returned to the question as to how the revolt was to be dealt with. The king was vehemently in favour of putting it down by force of arms. Tostig was of all the Saxons his favourite friend, and he considered the insult offered to him as dealt against himself. So determined was he that he sent out orders for the whole of the forces of Wessex to march and join the royal standard. In vain Harold and Edward's wisest counsellors endeavoured to dissuade him from a step that would deluge the country in blood, and might lead to terrible disaster. In vain they pointed out that while all the thanes would willingly put their forces at his disposal to resist a foreign foe, or even to repel an invasion from the north, they would not risk life and fortune in an endeavour to force a governor upon a people who hated him and as most thought with good reason the king was immovable but harold and his counsellors took steps quietly to inform the thanes that the witan was opposed to the order and that for the present no harm would be done by disregarding the royal mandate the king in his anger and mortification at finding himself unable to march against the rebels with an overwhelming force fell ill and the control of affairs passed into harold's hands and the king, whose fits of passion, though extreme while they lasted, were but short-lived, and gave him full power to deal with the matter as he thought best. Harold had done all that he could for Tostig when he went to Northampton, but had failed. 
there was no alternative now between a great war followed probably by a complete split of the kingdom or acquiescence in the demands of the men of the north he did not hesitate but in the name of the king confirmed the decisions arrived at by the gemmet of york recognized morcar as earl of northumbria and granted a complete amnesty for all offences committed during the rising on condition only that a general Wittenagemot should be held at oxford at this meeting northern and southern england were again solemnly reconciled as they had been forty-seven years before at an assembly held in the same place End of chapter twelve